All right. Everybody's in 1 Corinthians. This is chapter 7. We're going to be in chapter 7 today. Um, man, this chapter is something else as I've been studying. There's a lot of stuff in here. And um, we're going to start out, I'm just going to let you know right off the bat here, we're going to start out with the first 25 or so verses, but we're going to see um, how far we get into this chapter as we work our way through it. Um, just uh, some powerful stuff in here, and I've just really been praying about how to share this the way that God would have me share this. I really feel that I have a word from the Lord for you this morning, and um, I am thankful that God is faithful in this. But let's start here in chapter 7, verse 1. And Paul starts out, he says, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. So right here from the very beginning, uh, Paul, what we're going to see is that Paul is answering some concerns, some questions that the church in Corinth has about what's going on. What we're going to get from this, there's some, some really deep insight we need to gather from this. It's going to kind of tell us a little bit about the Corinthians about some of the things that they were struggling with, some of the things that they were working through. These questions reveal kind of the heart of the Corinthian church and the problems that we have kind of addressed already in the first six chapters. Um, these concerns and questions kind of allude to more problems that were going on in the church. So Paul says, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. You might want to underline that because of your lack of self-control. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am. But each has his own gift from God. I've underlined that and circled that as well. Each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. In verse 8, we're going to see how Paul's going to be addressing probably four or five different groups of people here. The married will address a couple times. But this first one is, to the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, there it is again, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. He moves on to another group. He says, now to the married, I give this charge. Not I, but the Lord. He's quoting Christ here. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. Moves on, verse 12. To the rest, I say, I, not the Lord. He's quoting Christ again. Or he's saying, I'm not quoting Christ here. That if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. 
God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is free, a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. All right, God's word for us this morning. Now, Paul gives clear direction here to, to a few groups, and we're going to look at all of those. The church in Corinth asked that question there right in the beginning. He's going to respond, so responding to that question. Their, pro, their question, we don't know what that question was, but we can kind of get an idea of what it may have sounded like. And I'm guessing it sounded like this. It says, now that, hey, Paul, now that we're saved, should, should we not be physically intimate with our spouse anymore? I mean, since before we were using it, abusing it, and our society elevates it above almost anything else, and there was temples all around Corinth where, where sex was idolized and worshipped, and, and they're thinking, hey, now that we're saved, should we just not do that anymore? The pendulum swings really, really hard the other way, doesn't it? This idea of, of walking out sexual immorality for such a long time and abusing it for so long, they, they now have the revelation of the grace and mercy of God through Christ, the, the salvation message, the gospel, the good news, and they're thinking, well, we got to get rid of all this bad stuff that's in our lives. We need to do the right thing. It really gives us the insight of what a mess Corinth was and, and re the real struggle that they were dealing with. So, um, so here's, here's what I want to go with this. The first fill in your notes is this, and it's something I think we really need to keep in mind, and it's this. Paul's saying, don't get legalistic. Don't get legalistic. And that's what happened in Corinth. Sex had become almost an exclusively sinful expression. This caused all kinds of confusion, and when the new Christians were saved, they were wondering, okay, we shouldn't go back to that again. So you can see their concern, you know, as they live in this just really depraved society and kind of the sin that God had called them out of. So they're saying, how do we live now? What do we do? How do we fervently pursue holiness, radically amputate sin, and not become legalists? That's a great question. That's a really good question. I think that's a question that we need to ask ourselves today. And Paul gives great directions. And we, let's look at it again. It was verse 5, just to review it as I know I've already read. But he says, Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of 
your lack of self-control. So, so first, first, Paul says, don't deprive yourself of God's good gift. Married couples who are married, don't deprive yourself of God's good gift unless it's just for a short time that you're con- just devoting yourselves to prayer. But he says you need to be honest with yourselves. And we need to be honest with ourselves. Take a really good look into our hearts and our lives and be real. Paul's really talking about celibacy here as he goes through the different things. And he talks about it being a gift. It's a gift that he has. It's a gift from the Lord. And some will have this gift and some won't. And Paul makes it clear that's a blessing from the Lord. So you have this this idea of of you can live out your life. And and Paul says, hey, you know, some of you can be like me. I hope that you guys could be like me, that you could walk in purity of mind and of heart and action and and not be married and and not have physical intimacy, devote yourself to the Lord. But but that's a gift and not everyone has that gift. You just got to be honest with yourself. Do you have that gift? If you do, praise the Lord. If you don't, get married, <laughs> he says. Get married. Find, find the one. And one is not better than the other. One's not elevated above the other. So, so those who, who have this gift of singleness, this is a real gift of singleness. All the single people out there who are living out a single life, that's a gift from the Lord. You can devote your heart and your mind to the things of the kingdom of God. That's a blessing, but there's, there's those of us who give our lives into marriage, and we need to take an honest look at that. Verse 7, Paul says, I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. Now, this is where we get into trouble. When we demand that others look like us or be like us, or we, we look down at people because they're not like us, right? I mean, we would never do that here at Mission View Church, right? I mean, but I'm just saying in general, right? What are some examples today? You know, they're talking about sexual immorality, but what, what are some other issues, some sin issues that we deal with today? Maybe alcohol or movies or TV shows or certain kinds of music, or many, many other things that we could pull down and abuse and, and, and be sinful things, but things in and of themselves that aren't sinful things. Like there's nothing wrong with alcohol. There's nothing wrong with entertainment and movies and music and different things. But can we take those things and abuse these things? There's nothing, there's nothing wrong with, with really good food and being a foodie and enjoying great food. But we can abuse food and be gluttonous, can't we? Now, what happens is, as God deals with us, we're, we're all on this journey of the Christian life, right? And, and as, we, as we walk with Christ, um, God is continually changing us and sanctifying us. It's a big church word. It's this progressive sanctification that as we walk with God, he continues to change us. That, that we're not the same person we were a year ago. Amen. Praise the Lord for that, right? That God loves us too much to leave us the way we are. And we get really excited about that change, and we should be. 
We should be overjoyed that, that I'm not the same Matt that I was last year, but God's changing me, and I get real excited about that, and I, I see victories and success in my life and sanctification where God's turning me from sin and turning me towards righteousness and growing me in relationship with him, and he reveals the truth about himself through his word more and more, and I'm just overwhelmed and excited, and then I look around at my brothers and sisters, and I'm like, why aren't they like me? Right? Why, why are they still going to see R-rated movies? Why are they still, and why are they still doing this or that? And, and we start looking at things, and, you, and then the next thing we're like, well, you know, I am pretty spiritual. <laughs> uh, you know, of, of all my friends, I, I may be the most spiritual, actually. Right? Kind of the pat on the back, and we're like, well, if you, if you really want to be like Jesus, you should probably just do what I do. That's not where we want to get, right? Think about that, that question the Corinthians asked. Should we just not do it anymore? We just throw it? No. No. I mean, one of God's first commands to humanity was to go and fill the earth, be fruitful and multiply. It's one of God's gifts to mankind that we would be, be able to, to grow as a species, that we would be able to be joined. The Bible talks about it in Genesis, that, that the two become one flesh, this spiritual thing that happens in marriage and in physical intimacy. It's a gift from God that we would have babies and all these amazing things, that, that marriage, a husband and wife, is a picture of Christ in the church, and, and it's a witness to the world, a beacon of hope. Of, of Christ in the church. And, and they're saying, should we just throw it out? That's what legalism does. That's what legalism does. It, it takes the beauty of God's gifts and makes it something gross. It's silly. It's silly. We turn in on ourselves. Legalism turns us in on ourselves. And Paul answers their question by pointing them that everyone has different gifts from the Lord. We are all in different places on this spiritual journey that we call Christianity. Now, we should confront one another and encourage one another, exhort one another to righteousness, but we should never condemn one another. We lovingly run after and restore our brothers and sisters in Christ that, that struggle in different things. Paul moves on to the divorced and widows. And it's the second, second group he, he talks to, second fill in his directions for the unmarried and the widows. Now you'll notice that I said the divorced and the widows. So let's look at it very closely. Verse eight, to the unmarried and the widows. It says unmarried there. Why did you say divorced, Matt? Okay, so in the Greek, the Greek word they're using there for unmarried is agamos. And it means unmarried, unwedded, single, now get this, or a marriage that is no marriage, or a fatal marriage. So he's actually talking to the divorced and to the widows. And he, he basically, this is, this is going to be the shortest point of today, because he makes it really, really simple. He says, it is good to remain single. It's good to remain single, but you need to be honest with yourself again. Can you exercise self-control? Has God given you that gift? the gift of celibacy and singleness? If not, what then? Get married. It is better to marry than to burn with passion, he says in verse 9. Now he jumps on to the next group, 
and directions for the married. He says, to the married in verse 10, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. And, and he's quoting Matthew 5, 32 here. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. Don't get divorced. Don't get divorced is what Paul says. And it was what Jesus says in Matthew 5. Marriage is meant to be that picture of Christ and the church. I really want to talk about this a little bit. It's because divorce destroys what God created to be beautiful. The beacon of hope to the world, divorce just blows it up. And we've been fed a lie about marriage. We have been fed a lie about marriage. Our culture, through books and seminars and sermons and movies, have painted a picture of marriage that has nothing to do with the biblical standard of marriage. Get married and live happily ever after, right? Any marrieds here that just know that's so true? Right? What? what? I don't know. I don't, think, I don't think that's actually in Scripture. Get married and live happily ever after. I'm just looking for my happily ever after. I'm just looking for that knight in shining armor or that dream girl. That dream girl. Throughout all of Scripture, God tells us that Christian marriage is the picture of Christ in the church. Not Snow White, not Cinderella, but the husband being a type of Christ and the wife being a type of the church. What is that relationship like? It's a gospel-centered relationship. What's that mean? It means a relationship that is marked by sacrifice, repentance, forgiveness, restoration, long-suffering, joyfulness, and selflessness. It's not your happily ever after. It's living for God's glory ever after. Are you tracking with me on that? Biblical marriage isn't about your happily ever after. It's about you living for God's glory forever after. We have to stop running after happiness and running after holiness. Okay, just really quick, turn with me to Matthew chapter 6, because I think we really, really have to lock this into our minds and into our hearts today. God wants you to hear this today. Matthew 6, 33 and 34 but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. You want to be happy in your marriage? You want to find happiness in your marriage? Quit looking for your spouse to give it to you and look to the Lord to give it to you. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Stop looking to money to give it to you. Look to the Lord. Stop looking to a new home to give it to you and look to the Lord. So oftentimes we think our spouse can give us something or things that only God can give us. That's a hard place to be. That's a really, really hard place to be. If your spouse thinks you're Jesus, 
I hate to tell you this, you're going to let them down. You're going to let them down. Here's, here's the truth. I think, I think that God, one of the main reasons, not the only reason, but one of the main reasons God created marriage isn't just for our happiness, because I think there is a great joy in marriage through Christ, but one of the main reasons he created marriage was for our sanctification. I have counseled hundreds of married couples, and do you know how many of them are a perfect match, perfectly compatible? Can you guess out of the hundreds that I've counseled were a perfect match? Come on, throw up some numbers. Twelve? What other ones? Zero. Absolutely zero. I have married, I have pre, I have Engaged couples come to me for premarital counseling and they look at each other. Oh my goodness, we are the perfect match. She is the woman I've been looking for my entire life. She checks all the boxes. He's my knight in shining armor. I've been praying for him for seven years. My parents have been praying for him. You have no idea. We are the perfect couple. And I go through the premarital counseling stuff that I have with them. And you know what I find out every single time? They are exact opposites. <laughs> it's hilarious. We go through it. We, we do personality tests and all these different things. And it's, it's, it is crazy. It is crazy. Now the world calls it this. They say this opposites attract. I think God just puts opposites together because he's like, oh, I'm going to do something good. He's like, oh, yeah, I am going to use him to challenge her, to frustrate her, and she's going to work this, this forgiveness and grace and mercy. I'm going to work that into her life for her husband, and, and she's going to just frustrate him, and she's, there's going to be all these issues, and I'm going to work this grace and this gospel message into their marriage. As he forgives her and, and she forgives him, it's going to be this beautiful beacon of hope to the rest of the world that, that don't have the hope of, of repentance and forgiveness modeled in Christ and empowered by the Holy Spirit. I think one of the main reasons God gave us marriage is for our sanctification, for our good, for our change. Don't get divorced. Jesus says it, Paul says it, and I'm saying it to you today. Don't get divorced. Let's move on. Verse 12. To the rest. He addresses the rest. I say, I, not the Lord. So what he's saying is he's not quoting Christ here, but this is still the authoritative word of God, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. Well, for the sake of time, I've already read that. Let's move on. You have the opportunity, those of you who are married to an unbeliever, a pre-Christian, make that our prayer, you have the opportunity to be a conduit for the grace of God. Paul's not saying in that text there, if you wanted to go back and read through it, he's not saying they are saved by your salvation, but he's saying you could be the conduit of grace to your spouse to your unbelieving wife or to your unbelieving husband. If you find yourself, if you, you find Jesus or God finds you and saves you and you're already married and your husband or your spouse is not saved and you are, stay in the marriage if they're willing to stay with you. And love them to Jesus. 
Love them to Jesus. You are a conduit of grace to them and to your children. Who's to know, Paul says, who's to know if, if, if you're going to save, if that's going to be the, the grace God uses to save your spouse? Stay in the relationship. Stay in the relationship. Let's read back at verses 17 through 24. There's some important things here I wanted to pull out. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him. Go ahead and underline assigned to him and to which God has called him. Really, really important part of this text. Did you know that God has assigned your life to you, that God has called you? You are assigned and you are called. No matter where you are and what you are doing, God has purpose in it for you, for his kingdom. It is no accident, it is not happenstance that you are in the job that you're in right now, The sovereign God knew the day he would save you and the moment your life would be brought to true life. So you can kind of hear the question that the, the church in Corinth had. Now that we're saved, what do we do? My life is completely flipped upside down. I've, I've done a total 180 and this is crazy. So like, Should I not sleep with my spouse anymore, you know, or do I change jobs or do I, I mean, let's just, you know, I'll just, we should move. Let's just move to another city, <laughs> you know, let's just go and, and Paul's, Paul's just going to make it really clear right here. He said, no, no. And this is, this is, I think this is really, I want to say this right. I think this is, this is what he's saying. Stay where you're at. Do what you're doing. God has purpose in it. Salvation doesn't change our circumstances. It changes how we respond to our circumstances, right? Salvation doesn't change our circumstances, our location. It changes how we respond where God has put us. If you're a teacher and you get saved, you're still a teacher. Just be a Christian teacher. If you're a lawyer and you get saved, find a new job. Just kidding. <laughs> totally kidding. Totally kidding. No, now you're a Christian lawyer. If you're, you're married and you get saved, stay married. But God changes us. And most of the time, uses our circumstances to do it. And then, he uses us to change those around us in our circumstances. That's what Paul's pointing out in the Reference to this, you know, he talks about Old Testament circumcised, uncircumcised, bond servants, and all these different, that's really what he's trying to get across. Verse 24, so brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. There let him remain with God. That changes everything. With God who knows all things, with God who protects and provides and pours out blessing, with God who is all-powerful and can move mountains and stop time and raise the dead and heal the sick and defeat any enemy and change the hearts of men with God. That's how we stay in our circumstances. You are not the same that you were. Now you face your circumstances, your location, whatever it may be, with almighty God. Now that's really, really good news. Really good news. With God, he changes every perspective. He changes every paradigm. 
in every struggle we face. You are with God, and you have nothing to fear. All right, number four, verses 25 through 40, directions for the betrothed. Now concerning the betrothed, now this is an interesting Greek word. In fact, this whole section is really interesting. How much time do I have? Really interesting in the Greek, okay? So this, this Greek word betrothed is parthenos or virgin. So parthenos or virgin, young woman, having never been married. He says, I have no command from the Lord. So this is Paul again. He's saying Paul's not quoting Jesus here, but still authoritative word of God. But I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, now that's good to take note right here. It could be translated impending distress, where Paul is referring to the coming or impending persecution the church was experiencing more and more as the church grew. Paul knew it was only a matter of time before the church in Corinth would ex be experiencing the trials and the death and the suffering for their beliefs that uh, they were already facing in most places. So he's really preparing them for that. So that's kind of the context in which Paul is talking to uh, these people about the betrothed. He goes on, he says, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and would, I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as those, though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. He does it again. I mean, we've talked about it almost every week. He points out these struggles and trials and tribulations that are going on in the world. And then what does he do? Think about eternity. The world is passing away. All of this stuff that you're, you're storing in your savings account, all of this stuff that you're acquiring in your barns or in your garage or whatever it may be, all of it's going to burn. All of it's going away. Focus your mind. Focus your hearts on eternity. Don't get too caught up in it. Don't get too caught up in an election. Don't get too caught up in a pandemic. Don't get too caught up in losing a job. These are temporary things that will go away, but our God is eternal. Our eternity with God is, what we say last week, a really, 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 really long time. And he goes on, think about this. This is the next thing he says about this. I want you to be free from anxieties. Isn't that good? As I was just, you know, I was reading through the text, that's just a good statement. Because I don't know about you, but there's been some anxious times in my life. Anybody else ever have that? There's been some anxious things in my life. He uses this in the context of marriage. He says, the unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about the worldly things, how to please his wife. Can I get an amen, fellas? Any married guys out there, right? <laughs> and his interests are divided. 
And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about things of the worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Undivided devotion is interesting. Undivided devotion to the Lord. This is a key principle. You really make note of this. This is a key principle in fighting anxiety. So if you're struggling with anxiety today, Paul's giving you a tool for your tool belt in the kingdom and in your Christian walk. It's easy to get caught up in the temporary struggles, worries, trials, and sufferings. But God wants us to have what? Undivided devotion. What is undivided devotion? It's our thoughts, our time, our talents, our treasures. What has your undivided devotion? Netflix, Amazon Prime, the election pandemic, whatever it may be. Maybe it's something that happened to you early on in life. Maybe it's something that you're walking through right now. Undivided attention. This made me think, now this is funny, this made me think about my dog. I've got a, I've got a Rottweiler, there she is. That's Ella, she's about 115 pounds, so she's a big girl. But right now in that picture, yeah, go back to, oh yeah, there she is. She's a big baby though. Go back to that other one where she stand up, Casey. Okay, so this is, this is her, this is her, where she, she stands most of the time. Now, when we first got her and I was training her, she follows me everywhere I go. She's always at my feet, into the bathroom, everywhere I go. And I was thinking, this is the best dog I have her undivided devotion 24-7. She sleeps at the side of my bed every night. I go to bed, I have a pretty routine schedule. If I stay up too late, like I stayed up too late the other night playing some games with the kids, she comes, no joke, if I'm not in bed around 9.30, she comes to me, stands in front of me, and growls at me, and barks at me, and she's like, it's your bedtime, mister, let's get moving. This is no joke. And she will growl at me until I get, and go, get up and go upstairs. It's the funniest thing. She's the funniest dog. Now, I thought it was me. I thought I had this dog's undivided, amazing devotion. She's just the most loyal dog I've ever owned. And I've owned a lot of dogs until I heard one word. And then I found out what really had her undivided devotion. Squirrel. <laughs> one word that changed everything. I mean, you say squirrel, and that's what you get. Sometimes her hair will stand up on her back, and she'll start drooling as she's looking out the back window. My, my son says squirrel all the time to her just to get her all riled up. But she is so focused. There is nothing. I could get raw meat out of the fridge, and if somebody says squirrel, she will run to that back door. I can dangle turkey in front of her, and she's not even thinking about turkey. She is wanting to bolt out that door and play with the squirrels. Well, play with the squirrels, right? I mean, there's nothing, nothing, not a tornado, not an earthquake, not lightning, not a rainstorm, nothing. A hurricane couldn't pull her away from that door. If there was a tornado coming, I would have to literally grab her, pick her up, and she would squirm, and I'd have to carry her to the basement. That is undivided devotion. You're struggling with anxiety? Struggling worrying about what's going on in our world right now, in our country right now? 
focus, undivided devotion on who God is, what he's done, how he's provided, how he's cared for us all of this time, how he, how he saved us through his son Jesus, how he came to us when we were enemies of his and he, he turned our hearts to him. By his grace and mercy has he come to us. Focus on him, undivided attention, undivided devotion. Verse 36, if anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly towards his betrothed, if his passions are strong. Okay, this is really interesting. This is a really interesting section. I'll let you read it on your own. There's a big, not big, but there's a little bit of division on who Paul is talking to here just because this is written so differently in the Greek. Most traditional theologians think that Paul is actually talking to the father here, not uh, the groom. And the reason behind that is the reading in the Greek. It reads in the Greek as if he is talking to the father. And it, it really goes around that if his passions are strong. And in the Greek, that would translate this way, if she is past her prime, if she is past the time of ideal marriage. So you kind of have this idea. We have to think about the culture in Paul's writing this back in those days, this patriarchal society, somewhat abusive patriarchal society, uh, the daughters were owned by the father. And a lot of marriages, it wasn't, it wasn't uh, Cinderella and Snow White. It wasn't, it was arranged marriages, and most of the time it was arranged for the family's good, not the daughter's good. It was a dowry, it was money coming in, and you were gonna marry whoever dad said to marry for the family. It was not romantic whatsoever. But what Paul is really saying here to these fathers is he's saying, listen, don't, don't abuse your daughter. If your daughter is meant to marry, let her marry. Don't, don't hold her past her prime. Don't give her to her own passions, but be compassionate yourself. Let your daughter marry. That's really what he's saying, verses through 36 through 40. The culture really helps us understand what he's talking about. So many, so many things in this chapter that are powerful takeaways for us. Powerful takeaways for us. Singles, if you're single out there, and God's calling you to a life of singleness, what a blessing. What a blessing. I would encourage you to do as Paul says, give your undivided devotion, your attention to the things of the kingdom of God. Devote your life to kingdom things, not worldly things. And those of you who are married, to live out your marriage sacrificially for the kingdom of God. Isn't that neat how, how all of it comes together as brothers and sisters in Christ, whether we're married or not? What should our focus be? God's kingdom, the glory of God, that our lives would be an expression to the world of the glories of God in us. What about those of you facing anxiety? It's the same thing, that we would focus with undivided devotion, undivided attention to God and what he's done, who he is, his word and his truth. What a great word from the Lord. It is all about Jesus. All about him. Mission View, may we be a church with undivided devotion. Amen? Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you. 
Thank you for your word to the church in Corinth and your word to us here at Mission View today. God, I pray that these truths would take root in our hearts and in our lives. God, by the power of your Holy Spirit, help us to live this out. God, that marriages would be strong and would be a mirror to the world, a beacon of hope to the world of forgiveness, of repentance, of growth and sanctification, of happiness and joy in your kingdom. For those single out there, God, I pray that their lives would, would be devoted to you, Father, that they, they wouldn't worry about worldly things, but they would worry how to honor you. Lord, have your way in our hearts and in our lives. We surrender to you. In Jesus' name, amen.